Well, good morning. If you are a visitor or if you are, are a regular uh, attender, I want to welcome you. My name is Pastor Jonathan, and I am so glad that you have joined us here this morning. Now, some of you may know this and some of you may not, but my diet has changed pretty significantly this year. If you've known me for a while, uh, you know that there's a lot less of me to love this year than there was at this time last year. Uh, whereas I used to enjoy a Chick-fil-A chicken biscuit or a Rosa's burrito for breakfast far too often, uh, my breakfast uh, diet today consists of an egg or a banana or a triple zero yogurt. You may be saying, what is triple zero yogurt? Well, that stands for zero fat and zero sugar and zero artificial sweeteners. But there's a fourth zero that they don't tell you about, and that is zero taste. <laughs> One, yeah, amen. One morning as I was driving my kids to school, they saw me bringing my triple zero yogurt with me for breakfast, and they asked me, does it taste good? And I told them, absolutely not. They said, well, do you miss the things that you used to eat, pizza and tacos and breakfast burritos? And I told them, absolutely, I miss those things. But I'll choose y'all over pizza and tacos every single time. And they giggled and laughed, but I was serious. At the beginning of the year, I found out that the food that I was eating was literally killing me. And I had to radically change my eating and exercise patterns. And it has not been fun or easy, but I was not living in moderation when it came to the food that I ate. So I had to radically change to correct years of sin. Now, when I got to the office, I thought about that conversation that I'd had with my kids earlier that day. And it was a funny statement that I said that I would choose them over pizza and tacos every single time. But I was serious and I meant it. I love my wife and my kids so much that I chose them over the things that were enjoyable at the time of consumption, but yet were destroying me slowly over time. I chose to love them more than I love the things that had been controlling me. In the text we're going to study today, we'll see that there are many things that can take us captive and control us, but we must choose to love God over those things. This morning, we'll continue walking through our series in the book of 1 John. And last week in the book of 1 John, we were in chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, and we discovered what it looks like to walk in the light in every age and stage of spiritual development. And we're called to grow in Jesus and to help others grow in him too. Today, we'll discover what it looks like to love the light and to hate the dark. Now, if you have your Bibles, take them out and turn to the book of 1 John. And today we'll be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. So take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And it says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of the life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, we've been walking through this book of 1 John for nearly two months now. Uh, we've seen a clear call to walk in the light. We've understood that Christ is our advocate. And we've been told to rest in him. We've been told to obey him. And so far, John has spoken directly to the readers on what they should be doing and what they should not be doing as they pursue the light. But he has not told them what they must not do. 
Here at the beginning of verse 15, we see our first imperative command in the book of 1 John. Now, imperative is just a fancy word that describes the mood of the word written, or of the verb in particular written in Greek. It means something that you must do as a result of being in Christ, or in this case, something that we must not do. So what is it that John tells us that we must not do as a result of being in Christ? Well, he tells believers that we must not love the world. Since this is the first time that John has used an imperative command in this letter, it's important that we understand with clarity what he is saying here. First of all, what does he mean by the word world? Uh, This can be sort of confusing. What can he mean by this use of the word the world? Didn't Jesus say in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life? Surely John can't be contradicting Jesus. So how can we understand the world here? Well, sometimes the world means it's used to refer to people, like it is in John 3.16. We know through the entirety of Scripture that this can't be what John meant here because God loves people in the world and he sent his son to die for their sins. Sometimes the world means the planet Earth. Uh, This can't be what John meant here because John would not have recommended his readers hate something that God said in Genesis 1.31 that was originally very good. Even after sin entered the world, nature's physical beauty still reflects God's glory and demands praise. We should enjoy the rain. We should enjoy the beauty of creation. We should admire the wonder of the Grand Canyon and the splendor of the Rocky Mountains and the beauty of Big Ben's vast landscape and the array of the colors in ocean sunrise. It reflects the creativity and the beauty of God. So what does John mean by his use of the word the world here? Well, looking at the coming text, and the whole teaching of God in the Bible, we must understand that John means teachings, ideas, cultures, attitudes, and activities that are opposed to God. So, in general, everything that opposes Christ here on earth is what he means by the world. The kind of outlook that ignores God and goes about with no thought of God. So John is telling us here not to love the things that give no thought to God. So we understand what the world means, but what does he mean by the use of the word love? Well, the English language is so funny when it comes to the word love. Uh, my kids will often giggle at the, la- at the fact that you can say that you love God and you love pizza. Or I can say that I love my, life, my wife and I love baseball. But that's the reality of the English language. But if we break it down in its simplest form, love can be two things. A desire for something and a commitment to something. So whatever you desire and whatever you are committed to, that's where your time and resources go. Think about that for a moment. If you love sports, it doesn't matter how much they charge for MLB.tv. You're going to pay it so that you can watch the Rangers play every single game. It doesn't matter. If you love Chewy's, it doesn't matter that the closest Chewy's is in Lubbock. You're going to drive there immediately, and you're going to order the Elvis Presley plate. All right, whatever it is that you desire and whatever you're committed to, that's where your time and resources will go. Love is more than an emotional feeling. Love requires a commitment of time and resources. So John is calling his readers to not invest their time and resources in the world. 
So if we break down the first part of verse 15, we can understand it simply like this. Do not invest your time and resources in the teachings, ideas, cultures, attitudes, activities, or things that give no thought to God. John begins this verse with the first imperative command that we see in this letter. Do not love the world or the things in it. And at the end of verse 15 through verse 17, he, sum, he supports that command. Beginning in the second half of verse 15 through verse 16, he supports that command with this, the impossible, loving God and loving the world at the same time. He says it is impossible to do so. Well, let's read that real quick, the second half of verse 15 through verse 16. It says this, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. It is impossible to love God and the world at the same time. In fact, John says that if you do love the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. In fact, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24. He said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. To love God and the world at the same time is impossible. To obey one requires that we disobey the other. Now, I preach out of the ESV, and they chose to translate a few words in here as desire. However, it has the meaning of desire and lust and craving or longing. Other translations that you might be reading out of today chose to translate the word here as lust. I think for understanding of meaning today, we can better understand that word as lust. So what does lust mean? It means that instead of us controlling our desires and using them as we ought to, we are controlled by them, that they master us and they control us. Now, God has given all humans desires that are perfectly normal and good. I talked about hunger, and hunger is something that we experience, and food is great. However, if we are controlled by those desires, then we are guilty of lust. John begins to outline what it looks like to love the world with the lust of the flesh. He gives three supporting ideas here of, of what it looks like to love the world, and that is our fleshly desires, our desire for the things that we see, and the boastful pride of life. So he begins to outline what it looks like to love the world with the lust of the flesh. It's impossible to love God and pursue the lust of the flesh at the same time. This is the person who lives for sensual gratification or the joy that comes from senses experiencing something enjoyable. This includes those of us who like to eat. Now, there's a difference between loving food and appreciating great-tasting food and those who live to eat. Someone once said that we need to eat to live and not live to eat. However, when we are driven by lust of the flesh over food, then we are guilty of living to eat. Now, I, I've realized halfway into this I'm talking about food a lot, but we're almost done talking about food, I, I'm telling you. So food is amazing. And God could have just given us things that tasted like triple zero yogurt and or cardboard to get nutrition from. But yet he gave us cows, right? So we could have steak and we can have brisket and then we can have ribs and Chick-fil-A peach milkshakes and Bahama Bucks and fried okra and all of those things that are no good for us, but we all love, right? So does John mean that we should only eat things that taste awful and experience no pleasure in this world? No. 
God has created things to be enjoyed, and we should enjoy the things of this world like good Texas barbecue. But what does it look like when we go from enjoying things to lusting after things? It's when we go from simply enjoying them to allowing them to control us, to master us, and to enslave us. And then we have begun to lust over things. But it's not just food that causes us to lust in the flesh, is it? It can also be others' flesh. We live in a world that is driven by lust in the flesh for others. A world where flesh is seen as marketable and promiscuity is encouraged and where your self-pleasure is named as your priority in life, where YOLO, or you only live once, is often the slogan for giving into self-pleasure with no thought of bringing glory to God but only to our sinful desires. The desires of the flesh are not from the Father. And if you love those things instead of loving God, then the love of God is not within you. John says, do not do that. Do not love the world. Do not allow yourself to be mastered and enslaved by the things that give no thought to God, but only seek to bring self-pleasure. It is impossible to love God and to pursue the lust of the flesh at the same time, but it's also impossible to love God and pursue the lust of the eyes at the same time. Now, if you wear glasses and you have to go without them, then you know that eyes are a gift from God. With them, we're able to see God's beautiful creation. However, they are also open windows for temptation to enter. It is through the eyes that so often sin arises. It is what we see and what the world makes us see that so often causes us to sin. It's when we look with imagination and thought upon the flesh of others, when we desire what is not ours, and when we let ourselves become enslaved by the thoughts upon the flesh of others, whether in person or virtually. That is the lust of the eyes. But it can also be when we look upon with imagination upon the possessions of others. Imagining if we had that truck or imagining if we had that home or imagining if we had that job or career and we allow those thoughts and the thoughts of those possessions and achievements to enslave our minds. That is the lust of the eyes. But the lust of the eyes can also lead us quickly down a path of where we are enslaved by desires of others' thoughts about us. That we see us and we want that they see us and they want to be like us. That we are the Jones that they are trying to keep up with. This lust of the eyes as we look upon with imagination and joy upon ourselves quickly leads to the pride of life. We live in a world that celebrates the lust of the eyes and it's encouraged The desires of the eyes are not from the Father. And if you love those things instead of loving God, then the love of God is not within you. It says so in Scripture. John says, do not do that. Do not love the world. Do not allow yourself to be mastered and enslaved by things that give no thought to God, but only seek to bring self-pleasure. It is impossible to love God and pursue the lust of the eyes at the same time. But it's also impossible to love God and pursue the pride of life at the same time. We know the pride of life well in 21st century America, don't we? It is celebrated in a thousand different ways in 21st century America. We even live in a culture that has named this Pride Month. And it is celebrating and encouraging not only the pride of sin, but pride in sin. And we as a culture are a prideful people. But it's not only those people who are guilty of pride, is it? It can also be us. We can be prideful about the country that we happen to be born in, 
Or we can be prideful about the last name of the family that we were born in. Or prideful about the social status or career that we have found ourselves in. And just like it's not bad to enjoy food in moderation, taking pride in your country or heritage is not in and of itself bad. I tell my kids often to remember their last name and where it came from. Not in a prideful way, but in a way that they remember that they carry my last name. So how they act and respond and treat others not only reflects on them, but on the last name that they carry and ultimately upon me. So when you see one of my kids running down the hallway, I need you to look at them and say, I know your last name, right? Remind them that you know their dad when you see them doing something wrong. It's not a bad thing to take pride in where you came from or the things that you have accomplished if you remember that you didn't do any of it. God does it all. It's all for God's glory. But the problem arises is when we are more enslaved by our identity in a culture, a career, a last name, or a country, than we are enslaved in our identity in Christ. We begin to take glory for things that the glory belongs to God, and usually at the expense of pointing out how that somehow makes us better than someone else. You may think that this is an issue that could never present itself within the church because we're a humble people. Well, you would be wrong. Even in religious circles, we tend to be prideful and brag about our influence. The people that we know or our acquaintances or people are anxious to get into certain circles or certain clubs that has nothing to do with the soul and nothing to do with the spirit and nothing to do with God and his honor and his glory. And the irony within the church and church leaders is that we can quickly become a prideful people through boasting in our humility. And it ought not be so. It's ironic that we as believers can pride ourselves in wealth and possessions and circles and influence when the one who we have taken his last name as Christians, as Christ followers, Jesus Christ, was born incredibly poor. In fact, he didn't have a beautiful nursery to come home to, but yet his crib was made out of straw in the stable with animals. And he didn't have a corner suite office job, but he was a carpenter who worked with his hands. And when the world was looking for a boastful and prideful king to come, Jesus came meek and lowly, serving others and saving us all. Today, we might fight the temptation to chase those who might make us look good, to keep company with those who can raise our level of influence. Who did Christ keep company with? He kept company with sinners. He kept company of those in need. He kept company with the untouchables and the unlovables, as they were called in his culture. He kept the company of those who were entangled in sins. And Christians, just like I tell my kids to remember their last name because it reflects upon me, we need to remember our new identity in Christ and our new name as Christians because it reflects upon him. We can be consumed with building our kingdom here, or we can be consumed with building Christ's kingdom today. John finishes verse 16 by saying the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of the life, it is not from the Father, but it is from the world. This is what loving the world looks like. Loving the lust of the flesh, evidence of the mind. Loving the lust of the eyes, evidence of the heart. And loving the pride of life, evidence of the soul. This is what it looks like to love the darkness. But what does it look like to love the light? What does it look like to love God? 
Well, in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, we see it put this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So we can allow our heart and soul and minds to be taken captive and enslaved with all that is in the world. Or we can allow our heart, soul, and minds to be taken captive and enslaved with the love of God. John continues in verse 17 saying this, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. John says that this world is fading. We know this. We've read the end of the Bible. We know that this earth is only temporary, and even more temporary than it is ourselves and our own lives. We see in the book of James, it tells us that our lives are nothing but a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Yet, how many of us spend our lives chasing the fading? This world and all that is in it that is fading away. The trucks and the cars that we have lusted over are fading. The careers that we are spending hours in anxiety over are fading. The perfect image and influence that we are fighting so hard to obtain, they are fading. The things that we're seeking so hard to grasp and to hold on to, even if we catch them, they'll only last for a moment. So we can choose to chase the fading, or we can choose to chase the forever. John says, whoever does the will of God abides forever. If we pursue God, if we love him with our hearts and our minds and soul, instead of the world, uh, instead of the world then we abide forever. Remember, we can associate the word abide with rest. It's a form of rest or being at home in or residing in. Think of the anxiety and the worry and the weariness that comes from chasing the fading. However, if we chase the forever, we find rest forever. Instead of weariness for a moment, we will find rest forever. Now, the one thing that all of my kids have in common that they have loved is bubbles. They love chasing bubbles. And now that we have a a one-and-a-half-year-old, my older kids love blowing bubbles and watching him chase them. There's just something about a child that is fascinated with bubbles. But the thing about bubbles is this. Sometimes you blow them, and what do they do? They pop immediately. Sometimes you blow them, and they last for just a moment. But then every once in a while, you get this bubble that you blow, and it just seems like it floats on and on and on forever, right? But in reality, it's just a mere seconds, and then it as well pops. Children love to chase bubbles. And the ultimate goal for a toddler or for any child is to do what? Is to catch a bubble in your hand and to hold it. Now, parents love bubbles because they have figured out that they can sit there and they can blow them, and their children are running around and chasing them and becoming weary and tired, right? And then kids love them because it's an opportunity for them to try to grab something in their hands. And every once in a while, if it's just perfect and just right, a child will catch a bubble in their hands, and they're so proud of it. But then what happens? It pops. It lasts for merely a second, if that. And all that effort and energy left them empty-handed. It's the same with us today. Many of us are chasing the fading We're chasing bubbles that are just going to pop quickly. And we're exerting a ton of energy and effort chasing things that are going to pop. And even if we catch what we are chasing, they're only going to last for a moment. 
So we can chase the fading, the things of the world, or we can chase the forever, the will of God. Listen to me when I say this, believer. If you are weary today, it might be because you are chasing what is fading and not what will give you rest. Let me say that again. If you are weary today, it might be because you are chasing what is fading and not what will give you rest. So what do we do with all of this? We've read this and understood what John is saying here and tried to understand it in our context, but what do we do with what we have heard today? Well, John tells us, do not love the world or the things in the world. He tells us not to invest our time and resources in the teachings, ideas, cultures, attitudes, activities, or the things that give no thought to God. So today I ask you this, what is it that is captivating your thoughts? Are they things that give no thought to God, or is it your pursuit of God? What is it that captivates your conversations, your priorities, your contentedness, and your identity? If we are captivated by the things that give no thought to God, then we need to wonder if we love the world and the things in the world. We need to wonder if we're loving the light and hating the dark. But then John lists some examples of the things in the world that could take us captive. First, he says the lust of the flesh. So I ask you this today. Are you allowing things that bring pleasure to your flesh to enslave you and to control you? Do they take you captive? It is impossible to love God and pursue the lust of the flesh at the same time. You need to pray today and ask God to give you self-control over the things that your flesh is lusting for, the material things that are enslaving you. Confess your sin today and place your hope and your faith and your trust in the only one that will give you eternal peace and a rest. But then he talks about the lust of the eyes. Are your thoughts taking you captive? David was taken captive by his thoughts of Bathsheba. And it caused him to take something that was not his and led him down a path of sin. Listen to me clearly in this place, believer. Do not take what is not yours in person or virtually. Do not take what is not yours in person or virtually. Marriage is a vow to God between a man and a woman, and that is the only way that God ordained you to have those activities in your life. If you are allowing the lust of your eyes to lead you down a path of sin, then you need to stop and turn around immediately. You need to come to this altar this morning and confess your sin and stop heading down that path. If you need help, the church doesn't exist here to judge you, but yet to help you fight your sin and kill your sin together. Would you come see me if you need help with this? Would you come see one of the mature believers that we have in our church that can help you fight your sin today? But do not remain in it. Maybe the lust of the eyes is causing you to battle contentment. You always desire more. Imagining if you had that truck or imagining if you had that home or if you had that job. Christian, find your contentedness in Christ. Now, that is not an excuse to not work hard. Yes, work hard, but don't find your satisfaction in obtaining more trinkets, but find your satisfaction in Christ alone. Maybe today you need to come to this altar and confess that you haven't been content in Christ alone, that you have desired trinkets for satisfaction. Christian, you can change your pursuit today, confess your, chin, your sins, and face the forever and not the fading. 
And then he talks about the pride of life, right? Galatians 6.3 says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We all know in this room, if we are followers of Christ, that we have done nothing to deserve salvation. We have done nothing to deserve the life that we are currently living or the eternity that we are promised forever. Yet pride has a way of creeping in, doesn't it? We can quickly begin to think that we're something because we stand next to somebody or because we graduated from somewhere or because we have a certain amount of zeros before the decimal in our bank account. Church, we have a problem today with pride of the flesh. We are plagued by Instagram and Twitter followers and how many likes we are going to get. But hear this, God has not called us to be the most followed people on social media. He has not called us to be influencers. He has not even called us to be a somebody. In fact, it'll do us all good to remember that he doesn't even need us. He has called us to follow him. Our only boast today as believers is in Jesus who was born in a stable with animals, was a manual laborer as a carpenter, and invested his time with people viewed as unlovable in his society. Today, let's examine our hearts. Do our hearts reflect the heart of Jesus' humility and love for the unlovable? Or does our heart reflect the religious elite who couldn't even recognize God in the flesh because of the pride in their hearts? Christian, are we busy building our kingdom here? Or are we busy pursuing building God's kingdom? Christian, do we love to tell others about our achievements more than we love to tell the lost about a God and a Savior who have died for them? These are hard questions. And I think we all need to repent today because we can all be guilty of loving ourselves far more than we love God. Christian, would you come to this altar today and would you plead with God to allow you to love him completely with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind? Because we can allow our heart, soul, and minds to be taken captive and enslaved with all that is in the world, or we can allow our hearts, minds, and souls to be taken captive and enslaved with the love of God. I began this morning talking about a funny conversation I had with my kids, how I love them more than pizza and tacos. But yet I was serious. I chose them over the things that were enjoyable at the time of consumption, yet were destroying me slowly over time. I chose to love them more than I loved the things that were controlling me. Christian, we are commanded here to not love the world or the things in the world. Today, will you choose to love God more than the things that are controlling you? Our big idea for today is this. Because we know Jesus, we know that he is better, and we daily choose him. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Believer, we can all be guilty of pride and lust of the eyes and lust of the flesh. Let's spend some time at the altar this morning asking God to allow us to love the light and to hate the dark, to not love this world or the things in this world and confessing our sins to him. Are we desperate for him today? We need him. If you're in this room today 
and you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And there has never been a time that you can look back at and have surrendered your all to Jesus. I want you to hear this. Earlier in this letter, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. I want you to know that there is a God. He created you and everything that you see, and He is holy. That means that he cannot do anything wrong, nor has he done anything wrong, nor will he ever do anything wrong. And he created you and I. But all of us, all humans, have sinned. That means that we have done something against God's law. And that creates a problem because there is a holy God who cannot be associated with sin, but yet we are a sinful people. And so it leaves us separated for eternity from him. But God loved you so much that he made a way that you can be reunited with him for all of eternity in a place called heaven. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to earth as a baby, being fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect, sinless life here on earth, but yet went to a cross and died for your sins. And three days later, he defeated sin and death when he rose from the grave. And today, you can be forgiven and saved. You can be forgiven and saved from your eternal separation from God in a real place called hell. And if you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ and follow him all of the rest of your days, then you can spend eternity forever with him in a real place called heaven. Have you done this? Do you know that when you die, if you will spend eternity with God or separated from him? Today, you can have assurance that you will be with God if you confess with your mouth that you believe in him, repent of your sins, and follow in him. In a moment, I'll pray, and we'll sing a song. And in that moment, you can come down front, and I can help you walk through this. Would you come today and place your hope and your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ? Believers, the altar is open. Let's do business with the Lord today. Church, I love you. Let's pray.